Mark chapter 9, verse 13 verses. I'm reading from the ESV today. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. No one on earth could have bleached them that white. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were there talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not really know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, not until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Here we are, another supernatural, you'd have to see it to believe it kind of experience in Mark. And amidst the the teaching and the healing ministry of Jesus and what that reveals of the kingdom, we have these kinds of moments and episodes that are so powerful that Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about and that often makes us have so many more questions about the event And I think that's to help us resonate as disciples. Clearly, the disciples have so many questions. It seems like day after day as they encounter Jesus, as he continues to make himself known and reveal the kingdom. And that's ultimately Mark's primary purpose. Here is the kingdom of God on display. Here it is in its full glory and its mystery. It's such an unexpected, upside-down kingdom that so few truly grasp it. It's, it's incremental. So many struggle so much, they can't, they can't grasp it, and they, they turn from it. They walk away. Others misunderstand and assume. They, they take what they see and they experience or they hear, and they make assumptions that are not fully accurate. Even those closest to Jesus continue to struggle to grasp The fullness of the kingdom. We've been seeing that again and again. Just recently, when Jesus had warned the disciples after the feeding of the 4,000, he warned them of the yeast of the Pharisees and King Herod. You may remember when they were on the boat on the way to a new region. And they started whispering amongst themselves and said, because we forgot to bring bread, we're going to have to buy bread from the Pharisees or something with the yeast. And Jesus knows of their conversation and says, do you still not understand? I'm not talking about bread. not speaking of earthly things. He was often, and if not always, speaking of some layered spiritual meaning and application. In this very previous section we just looked at last week, Jesus had had foretold of his arrest, his coming arrest, 
subsequent crucifixion, and his resurrection. Here he is again in the passage we just read, saying it again, and they're still questioning, what might this mean? They're still failing to grasp. So much so are their, are their eyes on earthly things that Peter stepped and rebuked Jesus for declaring that this would happen, as if he's not listening to the resurrection part. No, Jesus, this will never happen to you. I will not allow it. And Jesus rebuked him. Peter, you have in mind the things of men. You have earthly things in mind, not the things of God. And so again and again, their mindset is is earthly. And now they come into this encounter that's very spiritual in nature. There's no, no denying it. And yet they still struggle to connect the dots of what does this mean? What is its implication? What are we experiencing? And so many questions ensue. Now we know that the disciples did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Many did not believe. At least they got that part of it right. You are the Christ, Peter had said. You are the the one that has been foretold of, the promised one, the King of Kings. And yet they assumed that the Messiah would be one to deliver them politically. He would be the one to lead the revolution, to defend against Rome, to reestablish them as a nation, to reestablish the monarchy, the king in the line of David. How easy is it for us to take the promises of God and manipulate them to fit our own story rather than his story? And because the disciples could not fully grasp the story of what Jesus was proclaiming to them, then they had no concept for this revolution beginning under the Messiah to lead to the cross, to lead to his death. There was no place for that. How could that lead a movement? But again, their eyes, their mindset was so low, it was too small. Jesus would triumph. He would conquer. But greater enemies than Rome or any political army, he would conquer over enemies of Satan, sin, evil and death he would deliver an eternal freedom not just a political one jesus would be raised up and glorified as the king of kings and as the lord of lords as the true messiah his glorification though would not come in the ways of the world and we should know by now that his kingdom is not of this world something the disciples would come to see but in this moment, he leads Peter, James, and John. Some have called them the inner three, uh, those that Jesus knew needed to be closest to him to grow as disciples. As though often we resonate with one, of, one or more of these disciples, and Jesus keeps them close out of not that they were more faithful or more special to the movement, but likely because they needed that intimacy and closeness with Jesus, and he would use them in unique ways. So they go and they get to see this unmistakable glimpse of the glory of God and then the glory of Jesus. It's as if he's giving them something tangible to hang on to because the road ahead is not going to be easy. This becomes like a pinnacle moment and Peter wants to remain there, right in that place. Such a good place. It's so good for us to be here. Things have been so confusing and challenging and difficult. And what you're speaking of, Jesus... A road to the cross, a road to arrest, a road to death. I don't like that story. I like this one. Let's remain here on the mountaintop in this peak type of experience. But Jesus would not have them remain there. The road ahead was vital, though the path was hard. But he gave them this glimpse of his glory to hang on to because he will be glorified. He will be raised up. 
He will be Lord of Lords and King of Kings for the world to know. He will triumph over death. So hang in there, endure, persevere through this picture. Mark is weaving together so many themes, I think, here, and especially for the, the, from the Jewish historical perspective, as Jesus comes to fulfill all things. He's fulfilling the story of God. And one of the biggest storylines across all of Scripture is God will come to his people. God will pursue his people to dwell with them, to make that possible. And in so doing, and by his very presence, God reveals his glory. His presence is glory. And so on this mountaintop experience, Jesus is becoming the fulfillment of the story of God, of his love and pursuit to dwell with his people and to be seen in glory. And the disciples get a glimpse of that to hang on to, to encourage their faith. Would that be our prayer? And would you pray that with me as we continue in this message? God, give us a glimpse, just a glimpse. That's enough. A glimpse of your presence and of your glory today that we can hang on to that, of your promise to be with us, to dwell with us for the days ahead. Because as we walk out these doors into life, sometimes it's like walking back into the valley or onto the hard road. The paths that we've been walking are challenging. Such is the world that we live in and just the reality of living within a broken system and structure and even broken bodies as we face pain and difficulty, persecution or suffering. Jesus, remind us of your presence. Give us a glimpse of your glory. Perhaps it's a tangible one. Perhaps it's spiritually. Just simply through your promises, your presence is felt and the communion and community of the saints So be praying that as we continue to see this picture in a little bit more detail and make some connections. The ancient way of thinking was that the divine lived in the mountains or on the mountaintops. It was was kind of the bridge between the heavens. And that, that kind of makes sense. Nothing else could live or survive, not even vegetation at the higher level peaks. So that the gods must live there. And that's where you would go to commune with them. And a part of, a part of the ancient story of, of God's people was also meeting with God or having experience on the mountaintops. We're not that different than this. I mean, there's a, there's a pursuit. I think it's a crazy one to climb mountains and to summit them simply because they are there. I'm looking at you, Phil. Uh, you tell me about the divine moments. I've, I've been on some lesser peaks but being at some of the taller peaks that are truly uninhabitable the experience of being at the top and seeing there's there's something about that when i hear hikers and climbers speak of that they're they're drawn to it and then again and again for the experience and it's almost like a divine one there's a sense of that so something about that resonates with us maybe it's just the thin air and the lack of oxygen i don't know but this was an ancient way of thinking that's not that different than us. And we even speak metaphorically in the same way. The mountaintop kind of experiences, the peak experiences, that's where it's good. That's where it's best. The valleys are the low places, the hard places. So that's not too foreign of a concept for us. And throughout God's story, some of the, the most powerful encounters representative for his presence and his communing with his people happen on mountaintops. And probably the most... The most famous two people in God's story to commune with God on the mountains were Moses and Elijah, uncoincidentally showing up here in this 
this moment of glory for Jesus. And I think Mark expects that anyone with, with a Jewish understanding of their scriptures would connect these dots. And he gives us some clues even in the way that he writes. That's not Mark's primary effort. He is, he is writing to a, a, a Jewish and a non-Jewish audience. He recognizes both hopefully will hear this and get some understanding. But he, he is writing with, right within that frame uh, of Jesus' is coming as the Jewish Messiah to, to, to reform and to fulfill all of God's story. Many of you know that I've been walking and praying through Exodus this year, the book of Exodus, slowly. What a slow journey. And I've been vlogging on it every day. And uh, a few of you are, are tuning in from time to time. Uh, so I see the parallels to this story. They're, they're quite palpable for me. As I'm in Exodus 33 today, Day 304 of the year, by the way, today. But look at, look, let's look at a couple passages in Exodus and see how they parallel this revealing of God's presence and glory into Jesus. First in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. This is kind of the first experience on Mount Sinai after Israel has been delivered from Egypt and they're in the wilderness and a lot of other things happen. And then God is going to establish them as a people by giving them instruction and forming them as a people. On the morning of the third day, this is Exodus nineteen sixteen. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. And a thick cloud came over the top of the mountain. And there was like a loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled with fear. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and, a vo- and the voice of God answered. So he, see here, just like in Mark 9, we have mountain, cloud, or smoke, the presence of God, the voice of God, and fear and trembling from the people. Probably the closest parallel, is, if we skip forward, is in Exodus twenty four fifteen. This is when Moses goes up to meet with God, being called up by, by God to commune with him. And this is where he will receive God's instructions, many commands, instructions, instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Here's the description of it. When Moses went up the mountain, this is Exodus twenty four fifteen. the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you see some of those parallels? Mark began in, in, in his description and said that very line, after six days. Whenever there's some time markers like that, when, when Mark does not write in a chronological fashion, there's, it's something to clue us in. Why was that important? If you, line, if you line up the gospel accounts, there'd be many times where you would say, well, why is this out of order according to this gospel? That's just not, that, that wasn't his first intention. That's really not how they wrote in that time. We're much more linear and chronological in the way that we describe events. They're much more thematic. And, and Mark picked up on themes. And so it didn't matter and it didn't make it inaccurate to say, and then Jesus and the disciples went to Capernaum, even if that had happened months before. 
That wasn't part of their frame. It wasn't any, by any means trying to deceive or, or manipulate. It was simply following themes and storylines. So when a marker for a specific time shows up, you have to ask, why now? Mark, why are you putting this in now? And there's nothing else in the story, to me, that indicates why it was important that six days had passed between the previous and now, unless we read Exodus 24, where God had called Moses up to be in his presence, to experience his glory, and he had him wait for six days, and on the seventh, he met him and spoke. By the way, that six days and then seventh is a pretty significant rhythm throughout the scripture. So here it is again. After six days, misunderstanding the kingdom of God, struggling to wrestle with it, Jesus calls them up with him to the mountain and God will speak and his glory will be revealed. And so we see this overlap I don't know if the disciples fully grasped what was happening. Likely not. That's the story. And yet in this moment with, with Peter's Hebrew upbringing and an understanding of the story, this would have been one of the pinnacle stories for, for any child and throughout the, throughout the nation of Israel to know how God established them as a people. And so much of their promises of his rule and reign in their life came from this part of the story. You would know as a Hebrew child this story inside and out, if not have much of it memorized to the word. And so here is Peter seeing that, seeing that this, this event, this glory, this cloud, this voice. And so when he says, it's good for us to be here, let's build some shelters. It's possible that in his mind he's thinking, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We could be here a while. And where else would we want to go anyway? The presence of God is here in this place. And so we can excuse him a little bit, though Mark does say the text, in the text, he didn't quite know what to say. That was, it was just a reaction. He wasn't perceiving rightly. But we see the parallels between the story of mountain, cloud, voice, presence, and trembling, and fear in that place of uncertainty, probably of amazement. But just as suddenly as the cloud had come, the the moment passes, it ends. See, Moses was getting instructions from God and and would later write those instructions down, uh, the commandments of God, the the main things, the instructions for Sabbath and regulations and festivals and feasts, the, the instructions for how to build the tabernacle, which would be God's dwelling place amongst his people, incredibly detailed. And so 40 days seemed that he could remember all that was said. It was likely repeated again and again so that he could grasp it and apply it. That's unnecessary here. It's as if God is saying, this is my son. He's the word. He's my presence. He's the tabernacle. Listen to him. That's all you need. I've given you everything else in the past, and that's good. And it's not being abolished. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the prophets, to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the story. Put it in its proper place. Receive it. Celebrate. It's your legacy. It's your history. It's the story of my pursuit and your love, my love for you. But here is Jesus now. This is all you need. Listen to him. Draw close to him. My presence goes with you. So as much as we want to remain on the mountaintop experience... And my guess is many of you, maybe you wouldn't use that word, but if I frame it this way, then you would say, yes, I, I agree with that. You've had a mountaintop kind of spiritual experience in your life. 
Maybe it was a moment. Your mind goes there now, an experience, a specific service. Likely it was, it was an extended time is my guess. It was some kind of personal retreat or a conference you, you, you visited or a prayer conference that your church held or, or, or certain rallies, uh, where, where a special guest was, was in town. Perhaps it was a mission trip or experience. Perhaps it was all the way back to youth days where there was some kind of a summer camp or retreat that you went on. And it felt like day after day you were in the presence of God. You were amongst His people. You felt it tangibly. It's something that maybe shifted your faith or brought you to faith. And it really frames so much of your, your experience. And then you, then you leave that place. That, that thing ends. That time ends. Now for you hikers out there, maybe it simply is summiting the mountain. And you leave that place to return to the, the valley. To return to the rhythms and the routines of life. That are hard. It's a hard road. And you, you, the natural, te- let's get back there. Let's get back to that place. Let's recreate it or let's stay there. Let's dwell there. And that was never God's intention. God's intention wasn't that you would remain on the mountain apart from life. But that those moments would grow you, would galvanize faith, would reveal his glory, would give you something to cling to, to long for, to hang on to. Because our, 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 the full store of our full story and calling is to dwell with God forever, to be in His presence and communion. That is our longing. But currently, that is broken. It's incomplete. It's in process. And so we are meant to live life in the valleys, to celebrate life in the valleys. When the mountaintops come, when we can climb again, when we can ascend, when we get those moments, those Sabbath rests, those pauses, we celebrate. We rejoice. We're renewed. We're strengthened. But then we are to return to the valley. And the road is harder on the, in the valleys. And for the disciples, physically, emotionally, spiritually, this journey toward the cross, the oppression, the challenge, the temptation to abandon, out of fear of their own life, I don't know, I think some of you are probably going through some very difficult times in life. The road is hard. It's challenging or oppressive. You're, you're tempted to, uh, to turn from your faith, to turn to your own way, your own will, to continue to pursue it. You're just struggling by the circumstances of life, by, by loss or what has been lost or been taken from you. Or wrestling with something that you that you believe God is asking you to to lay down, to sacrifice, to lay aside, and it's it's a painful process because it's something it's something good or it's something that has been cherished. This is the road of of faith and the road of walking through the valleys. Let's not miss that Jesus. This is vital that Jesus came down the mountain with his disciples. He did not remain. His path was not up to the presence of God to dwell there. His path was to the cross, leading his disciples. And this is vital for us to see, this picture. I think it's natural for us, and so many world religions have incorporated this as a kind of vision. God is aloof. He's distant. It's like he's up there on the mountain. And we're just trying to find our way up to him. Find the right path, scrabble all the way up, and not many find it. Many fail. The road is too hard. It's too distant. If we make it, 
We fall on our knees. We, we bow before him. We try to appease him to get his attention. That he would bless us, honor us, receive us. This is the, the struggle of the spiritual life to find the presence of the divine. And I think it's just, it's a, it's natural within us because we sense the brokenness. We sense the distance. And that's the picture we create. So then God has removed himself. He's, he's afar and we need to draw near to him. And that is, the longing is right, the application is wrong. The gospel says there was no way for us up the mountain. We were never meant to strive to find him. God has come to pursue and find us. He has come down to us. He has descended. He has enveloped us. And he will continue to be coming for us in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's presence with us. He comes from the mountaintop, though that's really the wrong image. God does not desire to dwell on the mountain. He desires to dwell with his people. And he will come to us in Jesus. You know, the apostle Peter seemed to eventually get it. He said in his letter that he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12, regarding the hardness of life and yet the presence of God with us. He said, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice that you may participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This is the reality of the life that we live. Don't be surprised at the hardship, at the trials and the pain. Rejoice in them because you're participating in the walk with Jesus and his glory will be revealed in its time, in its way. It is coming. It will be revealed. The apostle Paul said, said regarding the glory of God and our perceiving of it in 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, we're seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. Pause for a moment. When, when Moses experienced God on the mountain, we'll come to that passage. He came down, his face literally radiated, and they asked him to wear a veil of, of sorts because they were terrified of what this meant in Moses. The, the image of God, the glory of God had rubbed off and was now radiating. There's some mystery there. We don't know exactly what that, that was. So when, when Paul says, with, we have with unveiled faces, unveiled, there's no separation. We see the glory of the Lord as though reflected back to us in a mirror. And in that place, we are transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So we may long to dwell in the mountaintop experiences, this longing, but that longing is ultimately fulfilled degree by degree, moment by moment, time over time, until finally, as citizens of heaven, we see it and experience it in its fullness. Immediately after the disciples come down the mountain, we can't miss this either. We'll jump into this section next week, Lord willing. They face and experience a demonic oppression manifesting through a young boy in a way that is greater than something they've experienced thus far. Jesus had given them authority, we saw previously, to go and drive out demons to take his authority and to to represent him and to heal the sick. So they've been accustomed to this. But they cannot drive out this demon, and they're perplexed by it. 
And Jesus will because he's with them. And we'll look at that next week. But isn't it interesting that after having this mountaintop experience, the glory of God being in his presence, they come down the mountain and the first thing they face is an oppression of the enemy and the evil that they had not experienced to this intensity before. I wonder if you can resonate with this. Maybe even in in just day-to-day life, the rhythms of drawing into God's presence, maybe this gathering is, is one of those rhythms in your life. Because there's, there's steps to take to be here in this place at this time. To try to commune with God and one another. To hear his voice. To pause other things. It's a, it's a sacrifice and a discipline. We don't always long to draw into a place like this. And there's many other things we could be doing, certainly. But this becomes a rhythm for us. And when God does speak and meet you, and when you're encouraged by the word, by the songs, by partaking in communion, and you're reminded when one another reminds you that you're not alone, you have these moments, and, and they may not be, you may not describe them as a mountaintop every week over week, but you have this moment of resting in God's presence. Then you go out into life, and Monday morning happens, or Tuesday, or, and, and this feels like this oppression, or resistance, or is greater than before. And sometimes the greater the experience of God's presence, the greater that resistance seems to be. Jesus spoke of this when he said, when the word comes and it takes root into our life, the enemy wants to be right there to steal it. Because that's his nature. His nature is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, though he is not all-knowing, as he observes growth in faith and growth in the spirit and intimacy to the presence of God and receiving his glory... He wants to rob that, destroy it, break it, tell you that's not worth it. Stop pursuing that path because the way is hard. The enemy wants to be resistant. But Jesus is with us. Jesus will deliver. Jesus has not remained on the mountain. Jesus now goes with us through these doors into your places where you live, work, learn, and play. He and the power of the Spirit will be with you Always, this is what he said in his great commission with some of his final words as if he was saying, all right, I am leaving. Here's what you need to know. We focus in on the first part, especially as an Alliance church or any mission focused church, the greatest commission, go make disciples of all nations. Teach them all that I've instructed to you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we memorize, I hope you memorize the last line. It's the greatest promise. And surely, I am with you to the end of the age. I will be with you. God will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He now goes with us. And he's with each of us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's return to the mountain with Moses in Exodus 33. Exodus 33, I'll read verse 4, 15, 14, and 17. So you... You can look, you can see they're all there, but I'm cutting some pieces here just to make the flow connect with what we are seeing. Now, this, this is after he had come down the mountain the first time, the golden calf incident had happened, the people rejected God, distrust him, you know, turned to an idol, it had been 40 days after all, God calls him back, and, and, and God says, I will not go with you. I'm sending an angel ahead of you, but I will not go with you. Here's the response of the people. 
When the people heard these distressing words that God would not go with them, they began to mourn. And so Moses pleaded with God and said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. So my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God loves to answer this prayer. This desperate prayer that says, God, I do not want to take one more step on the hard road through the valley if you are not with me. Your presence is the only thing that matters. Do we pray like that with that kind of desperation? It's a prayer that runs through the story of Scripture, runs through the Psalms, perhaps the most famous Psalm of all, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for my God, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You are with me. God's presence with his people, not his strength, not his encouragement. We might say these are the same things as his presence. We don't just need his promises for us, and then we go out and live. We need his presence with us every moment, every day, And he desires to go with us. He has not remained distant and aloof. He has come to us again and again to reveal his glory. Would we pray that we would get a glimpse, as you've been praying, as I invited you to be praying throughout this message, a glimpse of his glory through his story, through his promises, but in his very presence with us. He has promised where we gather together He is with us. We become the new tabernacle, like the temple, that he will dwell with his spirit. Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple? That his presence fills you and is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your presence with us is all that matters. We want to take this bold posture Like Moses and even like Peter, though he did not know fully what he was saying. And we do not either. We don't know fully what we are saying and what we are praying. But our heart is responding. May we not take one more step in life without you. If you will not go with us, leave us here. And yet we know, God, that you have promised to go with us as we Go into the world to represent you as your sons and as your daughters and as your image bearers. Give us a glimpse today of your glory, God, of your goodness, of your holiness. As we sing, as we commune, as we pray, as we respond and reflect and remember as we encourage one another, give us a glimpse, God, that we can hang on to for the hope that you are forever with us. Unto your glory, we pray. Amen.